0: I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. Yes, he is. And this is Playing Playing With with Science. Science. Today we only have the one guest. He's not a rock star a film star, or even a sporting legend. But he is British, so not only will he be splendid, he will most likely live in a castle and
1: have an army of butlers, just like everyone else does in Britain. Absolutely. I've heard that about you guys. It's true. Yes. Uh, Professor David James is, however, a sports engineer with enough published work to open his own library. He's also conducted research for sportswear giant, as uh, Gary would put it, Adidas. Thank you. And worked with the world governing body of soccer, aka, I say this for you once again, football. Thank you. Uh, better known as FIFA. Yes. Uh, along with many others. And last year we spoke at What
0: Makes a World Champion Seminar. So if that's what you are aiming for, then stick around. We will do our best to get the answer out of him by hook or by crook. Yeah. Um, also, we'll be answering questions of your own selection and making. So stick around. If you pose some questions, we'll get the good professor to answer those as well. Best introduce him properly.
1: We should indeed, especially since he's one of your countrymen and he's yes. actually coming to us from his home in Sheffield. Fabulous. So director
0: of the Center for Sport Engineering Research at Sheffield Hallam University and uh, a man who has got involved in so many different things. It could take a series of shows. To cover them all so let's get straight into things and so David James welcome to playing with science um, so as we can all start on a, a firm footing can you explain what it is you actually do so um, I'm
2: a I'm an engineer by training so I uh, started off life as a mechanical engineer um, but what I do is I try and I suppose use technology engineering techniques um, to improve sports equipment um, I have a, a great team. Um, we're an academic group. So we, we're in the Sheffield Highland University. I've got about 20 staff and about 20 PhD students. And um, we look at how we can use technology in sport. Uh, we use it to make athletes perform better. So we do loads of work with our Olympic teams, looking at all sorts of aspects of technology in sports um, you know, the equipment that people wear, but also how we measure them data, you know, um, intelligence around training, all sorts of different things, but it's all around technology. Um, And we also look at how we can prevent injuries and actually make sport more accessible for people. So it's not just the elite, but actually how you can use design and innovation to encourage, um, you know, physical activity and participation in sport, which is a massive, massive issue, you know, for, for the health and happiness of our
1: populations as well. I told you it was a series, yeah, didn't I? I, I? You've got your engineering tentacles in every <laughs> single area of sport where, where, no matter where it is. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. So do
0: you design, create and create original features yeah. or, um, or are you one of those groups that kind of someone like Adidas or any other body comes and say, this isn't working as well as it should help?
2: Yeah, a bit of both, a bit oh. of both, actually. So um, we do a lot of, um, sometimes we work before the design moment happens. So we'll be, so take what we do with Adidas. So we're trying to understand um, how different pl- players, in, in, say in soccer, move differently on different surfaces, whether they're playing on synthetic turf or natural turf or, or the new hybrid turf. Yeah. Um, and, and actually that what that does is that, that provides information for the design team to come up with products to best match the shoe with the movement on the surface. Mm. So sometimes we do the very sort of fundamental research to give the ideas for, for the design work, um, figuring out, yeah, so how does this person move? What are they like? What are the conditions like? Equally, we also get involved sometimes when the product's been made and we test it to see, well, does it really work? Does it make any difference you know, does it increase injury risk? Does it, does it do these different things? So often we're about the ideas, the inspiration for the designs and the testing. Um, and sometimes we do the design work ourselves as well. But actually, companies are quite good at that. Um, so as a university, we're more like a knowledge partner.
1: So I read that uh, you guys worked with Amy Williams. Uh, she's a British skeleton, right? She's a gold medalist skeleton, British skeleton in Vancouver. Yeah, Winter Olympics. And she she was like 143 uh, kilometers per hour is what she hit as a top speed. What did you guys do with her? Because I I couldn't find exact. I knew that I I found that you were that you had worked with her, but I couldn't find what exactly did you do? This is this is is an interesting story, this actually.
2: So um, it's kind of amazing the what. Team GB, so Team Great Britain, mm-hmm. um, how they've done very well in the Olympics in in recent uh, years. Bearing in mind, um, in, in the Olympic Games in Atlanta, the Summer Olympics, we got just one gold medal. Um, you know, we were like bottom of the, li- the medal table. And obviously in uh, in Rio, you know, we, we were second in the medal table, did incredibly well. Uh, and that, that's a huge transformation. So the whole high performance system has, has changed. And technology has been a key part of that that story um in the in the skeleton bob this one was actually a bit controversial because um there are certain rules around what you can and can't do and um we we kind of you know we 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 push things right up to the limit of what the rules
1: say you can do in terms of the design i read that other teams of of course usa because you know when the usa loses they're just like Something's terribly, terribly wrong. How is it that we, we can't lose? Anyway, mm. um, so not just Team USA, but a couple other teams were saying that there was a controversy surrounding her skin suit and that her yeah, skin suit yeah, gave her an too. unfair advantage. How so?
2: So the, the rules on the skin suit weren't particularly clear. Uh, they were a little bit ambiguous mm-hmm. and were open to debate about what you could and couldn't do. But but essentially we had, um, it's kind of hard to describe, But but the – from the helmet, we had part of her skin suit kind of uh, – there's a bit of structure to her shoulders. Oh. So it kind of gave this nice profile from her head to her shoulders. Brilliant. Which which provided a fantastic – well, a, you know, a small aerodynamic advantage. Right. And um, it wasn't overly clear if that was allowed or not in the rules. Um and some other teams didn't like it.
1: Uh, well, l- losing teams never like it. Let me um, just say this, uh, David. Uh, if Team USA uh, bitched about that, that is the most un American thing you could do. Because there is nothing more American than taking ambiguous rules <laughs> and using them to your advantage. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, that's what we do. That's, 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 you know, it, I, I believe in, you know, fair sport, good competition, but actually the modern, modern world of sport, you know, pushing things to the limits, uh, within the rules is what, is what you do. Right. You're there to win. You're not there to, you know, okay, look, I, I have quite strong feelings on this, but, but sport isn't a level playing field. Athletes get up in the morning to be better than their opponent. They want to train harder, get the right advice. It's all about getting an advantage. And the modern sports person really has to, you know, think of the whole
0: picture and push things to, to the limit whilst not stepping over that limit. Cool. What's your favorite project? What's the favorite project for you that you've been involved in and found successful?
2: Okay. That's, uh, that's good actually. I, I really like that. So one of my favorite projects was, um, working on goal line technology. Oh gosh. Yep. With, um, with, with FIFA. Um, that's been a great, a great fun thing to do. So um, yeah, I've I, I worked with FIFA helping them to basically decide whether goal line technology should be used in soccer. So this is a system which tracks where the ball is uh-huh. um, in a soccer match and it basically tells the referee if it's a goal or not. So that's been a great project actually. And so it's been really good to see a very sophisticated technology be be introduced into the sport and actually change the culture of the sport because soccer – has always been quite resistant to technology,
1: yeah. and I think it's, um, it's really changed now, actually, and uh, that's been a great, great journey to be part of. So speaking of measurements and you know this goal line technology, uh, let's kind of knead that dough and push it out to all other sports, because if you think about the one thing that is common in all the sports is there's a human being who's making a judgment call yep. about a ball. Uh, did that ball go over the plate? Is it a strike or a ball? Did that ball actually cross the line? Is it a goal? Did that football break the plane? Is it a touchdown? So uh, when you when you look at that, uh, do, if you were to make that measurement so that there was no need of a referee, do you think that's a good thing for sports or a bad thing for sports?
2: Well, it's difficult, really. I think in for some... For some sports at the top top levels, the the um, frankly, if you just look at the finance of it, you know, getting a decision wrong <laughs> can cost hundreds of millions of pounds. Yeah, per, and it's it's really it's you know it's fundamentally unfair, I think, to have the decision that's that's wrong be implemented because it can totally change people's futures. Uh, you know whole cities can be affected by that if your team goes up or goes down that 's got massive implications, so some decisions are so important they just have to be right and You can see that you know in world cups as well it's maybe the money's not so important but it's it's it 's a massive massive thing. you have to get it right so I think for that, I think technology has a very good role to play um, however the, the concern is that technology comes at a price and a cost, and um, actually at the lower levels of the sport. Um, they might not be ever be able to afford this. And so what that can do is it can actually pull the sport apart a little bit. You have different rules for the elite to sort of everyone else. And- right. That's the challenge because you know the idea is that someone who plays football or baseball they're playing the same sport as their their idols the pros right. Right? Um, so it should be one sport not not different different forms of the sport for different t- structures of the game so that's that's the real challenge but you know technology is getting cheaper uh-huh. um, you know camera technologies mobile technologies computer technologies it's all getting cheaper, and as the systems get more developed and you get more companies in the game, prices will come down so hopefully we'll
1: you know, become more open to problems. Maybe the two of you can explain something to me because you just said like whole cities, their fate can be determined. Okay, now we're not used to this here in America. Okay, Mm -hmm. and I just found this out this weekend um, that when a soccer team or football team, like, okay, let's say Manchester United or, you know, Crystal Palace, whoever, when they win or lose they can go up or down in standings that can get them put in or kicked out of a league. Yeah, so. so oh my God, this is insane. Who knew this? I'm telling you. So in football, <laughs> in football, it's completely socialistic, okay? You can lose every single game and you are still in the NFL. It's the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> That's correct. So, but so how's it working? How's, how does this work?
0: Oh man, it's it's frightening. It's like, Professor, if you don't mind, yeah. you start August, you end in May. It May, if you finish in the bottom three uh-huh. of the Premier League, right. your history, you get relegated to the division below. Oh, my God. This is what the professor means when he says whole cities. cities. Oh, my yeah. God. And, you know, if you lose one game, well, okay, you don't, you don't like it, but you get on to the next one. But if you've been so bad and you finish in that bottom three, you're out of here. Now, you can imagine that in a World Cup it's not just a city or a club right it's a whole country oh it, can you imagine if it got robbed of a world cup in the final <gasps> oops uh, <laughs> so it's, yeah. The, the, yeah, yeah. the 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 way the once you drop that pebble in the pond the ripples can be enormous wow. wow such ramifications wow and so i think i think it's interesting the the um
2: you know this i mentioned about cities so it's interesting in the uk that a, a really good sort of soccer team can really put your city on the international map. Um, so, you know, when I travel around the world, I say, yeah, I'm from Sheffield. People say, well, wh- where's Sheffield? And I say, oh, it's next to Manchester. And a lot of people know about Manchester because they know about Manchester United and Manchester City. Mm. It, pretty much anywhere I go in the world, it, you know, it was really, um, you know, throughout Africa and all over, people, oh yeah, I know Manchester, 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 and so it really affects the the, the standing or, or, or how people view your city. So right. it has it has very deep, profound effects.
0: These, these decisions
2: and, and being in the, the Premier League cities. puts you in that top flight.
0: So you have two big soccer teams: Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday. Don't ask me about the Wednesday. Bro. Sheffield Wednesday. Yes, <laughs> um, is that anything like Taco <laughs> Tuesday? <laughs> We'll talk. Um, Then you have the Sheffield Steelers, which is a hockey team. Then you have the Don Valley Stadium, which is track and field. I'm um, not sure about basketball but I'm thinking there is one but that's ba- so it, it's it's known as the St Sharks. Steph, thank you Sheffield Sharks. So you've got uh, you've got a lot of sporting excellence in this area as well as the good professor and he's he doesn't have an army of butlers he has a team a, an army of PhDs. Yes, an army <laughs> so, of PhDs oh, and PhD students. I mean he's just seen my butler and raised me an army of PhD graduates. Right, we are going to take a break. Uh, when we come back more with I'm going to call him a sports engineer, but it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't cover anywhere near the work that he does. But Professor David James will be with us when we get back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, Welcome back to playing with science. Uh, This is a fabulous conversation that Chuck and I are enjoying immensely with sports engineer, David James, professor from Sheffield Hallam university in delightful Britain, or we call it England. Really? You sound Uh, a little homesick, my friend. I know I'm getting teary. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) I said earlier on in the show that you spoke at a seminar about what makes a world champion. So professor you're up, what makes a world champion? Is there a secret?
2: Um, I think
0: good athletes make world
2: champions. Yeah. I think you know um, sometimes we get a little bit obsessed by the things that are going on behind the scenes. You know the science, the engineering, the technology. Maybe we can make a champion, but actually it's the it's the individual. And um, if you think about all athletes, great athletes, world-beating athletes, they're they're extreme outliers. Um, they're not normal they 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 literally have bodies which are on the edge of of, of normality mm-hmm. um they really are outliers so you, you have a, a brilliant kind of body to begin with uh, and mind uh, and ability so the athletes at the core of it but but that isn't nearly enough you know and we know that um basically great um great athletes are made mainly sort of by three three key components talent so that's the key thing, you know, what you're born with, um, the, the sort of the environment which that talent is then nurtured in. Yeah. And that comes from, you know, lots of things like, you know, did your mum and dad drive you to basketball kind of classes or whatever it is, or the team, team meets on a Wednesday evening? Or did they, did they get up early in the morning at 5 a.m. to take you to swimming you know, they, those kind of environmental things are massively important. So champions are a product of that system, often by their parents and what the parents have, have, have given them when they, were, when they were younger. And then I get people like me get involved later on when you've got someone who's, who's already very good, uh, we can then work with them a little bit to get them that tiny bit more. So what I do as a, an engineer, I'm never going to turn someone who's not good at sport, into someone who's a world champion, they have to be very good already. We can make very small changes uh, at the end, small small savings in time, a little bit, you know, uh, enhance their skills in some way through maybe virtual reality or different types of techniques, improve strategy. We can do those kind of things, but you have to ha- you have to be very good to begin with. Um, and I think the third thing. So I've mentioned two things: talent. Um, opportunity, well, so the environment, uh, or, or maybe you might consider the opportunity, um, and then the, the, the third thing would be the the drive from the individual. So the um, you know that personal resilience to keep going when it's tough, um, and that personal drive. And that, I think when when you're thinking about um, sort of a, maybe a national level, how do you come up with a great Olympic team? In a way, we can we can identify talent quite well. It's not precise science, but we can, we're pretty good at picking out people who are going to be good. We can provide the right environment, but it's very hard to identify people who have got those really strong motivations, that, that, that willpower to do it. That's the kind of the, the guesswork. Uh, and some people have it and some people don't. And um, the, the best athletes have got all three. They've got that talent. They've had the opportunities and they've got that drive as well. LeBron so I think James. it's those
0: three things that make a world champion. Yeah. yeah. People yeah. like LeBron James who just tick that box and have that X factor. Uh, I mean, there, there is one of your published works, uh, The Physics of Winning. Because I'm just you're, – you're trying to remember your own works now, aren't you? You've done that many. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking you've, been at, you've, you've had your whole team of PhD students and graduates and you've sat them down to come up with an equation – so you've, you've kind of got your own equation for winning in physics, but is it quite that simple or uh, how did you approach something with that, that kind of title?
2: Yeah, I think, um, so this is, um, this is the difference. So some sports are quite simple in a way. Yeah. So we call them, I, I call them linear sports, like, um, in a way like running a hundred meters or, um jumping the pole vault or a high jump or, or, or riding a bike around a track. But basically those sports are measured by a single outcome, which is a time or a distance or a height, you know, and, and actually you can break that sport down into a number of key elements like, okay, I need to have so much pa- power delivered at this time. And I know I can deliver that amount of power out of my body um and that will achieve this speed on the bike if i optimize the bike and you can basically make a very good prediction of what will happen and so that's why the physics come in because it's about the energy that the human body has and then and understanding how we use that energy to get what we need to get done you know we can tweak things like the aerodynamics on the bike or the body position on the bike and things like that to to do it so it's i'd say it's very deterministic Mm. like in a way, I can predict what's going to happen to within a sort of a fraction of a second. And then when the athlete goes to do it, they'll do that. Take a sport like soccer, you know, baseball, American football. We can't do that. No. We can't make predictions because you might have a plan. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Then what's the opponent doing? Mm. And, and then what are, the, what are the interactions with the team? So we can use physics and mathematics to describe what will happen in sport in these very linear, simple sports, which are often measured in time or height or distance. When it comes to, to sort of sports, which are games, which have multiple players, um, all bets
0: are off. It's, it's too complicated a system to, to try right, to model. So thank you, you for explaining things. that. Um, you've done work with wearable tech, not just the sort of telemetrics tracking sort of thing, but... And then you've gone on to discuss how it can prevent injury and you're analyzing impact. Can, can you expand on that a little bit more on exactly what areas you were working in?
2: Yeah, so we, we did um, uh, a project recently with, um, with FIFA, um, the, the governing body for, for soccer, yeah. football. And um, they, so it, we see there's loads now where players are wearing um, devices, tracking devices. Yeah. Um, often they use like a GPS satellite type tracking technology, but there are many other technologies as well. Um, they have other sensors in them as well, like um, we call them inertial sensors. So they've got accelerometers, rate gyros, magnometers, these kind of different devices to to measure what you're doing. Um, the trouble with these devices, you have to wear them and um there's actually a potential risk of injury when you're wearing them Hmm. so um, often these devices are worn at the top of the back yeah um and you know dare i say it they're they're there to get good satellite coverage so the satellite can see it very easily Hmm. it's not a bad place to put it because you don't see many collisions but putting something on your spine a hard object on your spine in a, in a potentially, you know, violent uh, environment. Like, well, what, uh, what could go asking, wrong? Come on, oh, What it could seriously risky? go wrong?
1: You, you've got a big hard thing on your back, right? Right. Okay, <laughs> come on. What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know,
2: I think there are, so we, we did this big study for, for soccer and um, we tried to understand what the injuries could be uh, as players are wearing these devices. And we surveyed lots of, medics and players who are wearing them um, and we sort of identified these sort of injury scenarios. And then basically what we did was we, um, by kind of recreating that, those impact events that we see in sport, we're able to improve the design of these, uh, these devices and actually is a sort of a, basically a, an impact test that they all have to pass now to be, to be deemed to be safe or safe enough. I said before, like we can't ever make something 100% safe, but we can reduce its risk of injury. Um, I think it's really interesting in the, 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 NBA are doing exactly the same thing. I think it's even worse in basketball because you've got players potentially, you know, landing on a hard court, yeah. they have got this hard device on their back. Um, okay. At the best, it might cause just a little laceration or a bruise, but at its worst, it could be, could be worse.
1: Yeah. So it's well, it's okay. been looked at quite a lot. Unless you're a delicate flower like me, in which case it would be absolutely devastating. Oh, gosh. Time to
0: take another break after you've said that. Um, Right, don't go away, Professor, because you are going to be back when we get back, and we will have cosmic queries here on Playing With Science and our sports engineering show. So uh, don't go away. Welcome back to Playing With Science and our sports engineering show with the wonderful Professor David James. And as promised... It's time for a cosmic query and your question.
1: So, uh, Jay Bailey, uh, who is a Patreon patron, which means that we're going to start with his uh, Jay's, because Jay could be a male or a female. We're going to start with Jay's question, because if you support us on Patreon. Uh, that's what happens. We give you a priority. Uh, My roller derby coach once commented that if humans were made to skate, our ankles would be on the front of our foot. (laughs) I'm still a little puzzled about that, but what other changes to the human design could you imagine that would make human bodies more efficient for quad skates? What changes would you make for a roller skate? Uh, And it is Janelle. So Janelle is probably a girl from Chicago. Uh, What a, what a, Wonderfully weird question, Professor. I think it's actually, there's there's some really interesting stuff in that question.
2: Okay. Um, Sort of, I think the the first thing is that the idea of having sort of a, basically like an articulated joint on the front of the skate, uh, like an ankle, is of course something which is done in speed skating. So um, in the 1980s, we had the, uh, the clap skate. So this is a, a device which is a, a, a it's speed skating. You know, it's, it's very big in the Netherlands uh, yeah. in the Winter Olympics. And the, the clap skate is a classic bit of fantastic sports engineering, where actually by putting that extra jointing or the front, so it's basically what happens is that at the toe, the, the the shoe can lift off the, the the hard skate which remains on the surface, and it just subtly changes the um, the biomechanics of of the motion and what that can do is it can actually improve the efficiency of of the athlete and the people wear club skates can go you know quite a bit faster using less energy so that it's not allow a more crazy power to be delivered to the skate to but of course you know if you think about the animal kingdom plenty of animals have quite interesting locomotion if you think about birds or ostriches have kind of almost like a reverse knee yep. um, and they can run very fast as well so yeah it's quite interesting to think about different ways
1: of being that's a great question, Janelle. <laughs> Way now, to go. And we got a great answer. And and yeah, those skates sound just perfect for me in the winter. This is Noar21 from Instagram who says, what is the comparison of head injuries in football versus rugby? And I'll include soccer into that, so your football. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, such as the severity of chances of having a head injury. Also, uh, do the use of pads and a helmet in American football contribute to higher chances of injuries solely because of the hard material? So a lot of, a lot of stuff packed into one question. You can unpack it any way that you want. But, you know, do you have any um, information on the comparison of head injuries uh, for American football, um, your football, soccer, and uh, perhaps rugby?
2: yeah so I think um look this is probably the biggest topic facing um, sport at the moment in in my world this whole topic of concussion um, you know it's particularly relevant well across the whole all sports all three of those sports soccer rugby and and American football I think the um, if I was to rank them it seems you know in the data American football seems to be the worst rugby would be second and soccer would be in third place. So most of my work has been around soccer and rugby uh, from the UK. We we don't get much work in American football, but obviously that, you know, we we, we follow what's happening there. I think um, it's interesting. I do quite a bit of work with rugby and um, rugby have been very um, cautious about, I suppose, allowing athletes, players to wear head protection or shoulder protection because they worry that it will change the playing behaviour of players. So players will be more aggressive when they go into tackles uh, rather than actually trying to protect themselves. Um, however, that is changing. Um, and actually World Rugby, who are the governing body of rugby there, they're introducing potentially uh, like some, some head protection now. Um, is kind of coming in. They're going to legislate for that. And the shoulder pads as well. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a controversial issue, though, because they are worried that if um, players wear this protection, they'll become more aggressive. And that might lead to injuries. So it will change the playing behaviour. And I think that's what, when we look at American football, that's what we see. We see actually, because of the equipment they're wearing, it allows this potentially quite dangerous behaviour to take place on the field. Um, so that's a, that's a really kind of delicate um, delicate balance at the moment. So World Rugby are introducing uh, this idea of some head protection and shoulder protection. And um, lots of researchers are going to be studying how that actually changes Behavior in the game, um, but you know there's, there's quite a lot of regulations around it already. Um, if you take the, and compare it to soccer, okay. So uh, in in soccer, this is also a topic actually, um, particularly around this concept of um, heading a ball. So when you've got a, the football coming coming across and players head it, um, there's a lot of talk now about you know can this lead to dementia in, in older life or, or mental health issues? I think that's very Not very well understood at all, actually. And I know in in America, um, I think you've banned um, young players from heading footballs in in training academies. I think that's true. And we've been thinking about that. What's the science for that? Is it valid? Is it not? I'm, you know, it's difficult because when you head a football, it's not a concussive injury. You know, right. it, um, or it's a, what you call a sub- sub-concussive injury. But the idea is just these repetitive, right. low-level impacts that over time may cause, in, you know, uh, an injury. But that's very, very hard to measure or understand and track. So, so yeah, the science I, there is not very well understood at all. Rugby in a better place, but I think certainly um, American football is where it's really happening. In, in, in
1: yeah, And those are some interest, interesting things that you point out. One, uh, one, we see in American football that there is indeed a um, – A a different playing culture because of the helmets and the pads. And so, one of the things that has been instituted this year in American football is the NFL leading with your head or leading with your helmet when you are tackling, especially the quarterback, is now a penalty. Uh, You know, also um, when you when a player is what they call vulnerable. So if a player is up in the air or a player is exposed on the field and you spear that player with your helmet, that's also now a penalty. And all of that is aimed at what you said, changing the behavior, the behavioral culture of the players. And it's difficult, it's hard to do. and I think
2: this is the the thing that we know, know, I, I do a lot of work in impact protection and trying to make sports equipment safer um, but all we can ever do is reduce the risk because actually, um, you can have a very, very safe equipment, but if you play in the wrong way, you can injure someone y- yourself or another player by being very aggressive or, right. or, or behaving in a certain way. So as an engineer, I can't make sport safe, you know, I can reduce <laughs> its risk, but if, a, if, if an athlete wants to go and do something, you know, a bit crazy, they're going to get hurt. Right. Um, and this is where the sort of the, the legal side of it gets a bit complicated because, you know, it can get a bit, well, you know, you get, get sued. Oh, you said if you're wearing this, you're not going to get an injury. Well, you know, if you behave in a certain way, you're going to get injured. It doesn't matter what you're wearing.
1: Wow. And also, uh, I do have an answer for it, and that is bubble wrap. Bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> Look into it, David. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah. No, uh, seriously, I mean, there's some really exciting, just just very just in terms of stuff that's happening. I mean, there's some brilliant science happening here. We're doing a lot of work in what we call um, it's a really cool material called auxetic foams. So a conventional material. This is really this is amazing science. Uh, conventional material. When you um, when you stretch that material, okay, the material gets thinner. Thinner. Right. So as, as you stretch it out, it gets thinner. Yeah, this is typically what happens. Right. Um, and that's a conventional material. It's, it's to do this thing we call a Poisson's ratio. It's a material characteristic, but anyway, an auxetic foam is a kind of a, it's a new, new idea. Um, and we can make them in foams. And what happens is when you pull that, that foam, this padding material, it doesn't get thinner, it gets fatter. So it actually grows. Wow. It's a, it does the opposite of what you think. And what this means is when you have an impact event, Normally what happens is the material flows away from the impact location, With this material, it flows, it flows towards right. the impact location. It's, it's really, really an amazing thing. So called a smart material, we call it smart material and it's, um, well, we're, we're exploring that and how we can use it in helmet protection. Um, we've been looking at it for um,
0: baseball and cycling helmets and all wow. sorts of different sports. That is cricket. fascinating. Fascinating stuff, man. Thank you for that. That's great. All right. Sean Larson here, question from Facebook. What effect does the shape and curvature of a snowboard have on its efficiency or path of travel down a hill? It's a, well, again, it's a, it's a really good
2: question. Um, a bit it's a bit complicated actually um, so what what happens is the main thing that slows a, a snowboard down is the is the friction between the snow and uh, and the board and actually that that friction is independent of the contact area so but this is what science says so it doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is you'll always get the same frictional force because the, as, the, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the contact area gets smaller, the pressure gets bigger, so you get more resistive force. Mm-hmm. As, the, as the contact area bigger, the pressure gets less, and you get less resistive force. And so the two kind of ban- always balance each other out. Um, so actually, the, the thing that determines how fast your snowboard goes is the, is the friction between the, the, the snow and the board, and the only real way you're going to make that to go lower is by having a low friction, like, like waxing the board. Um, or, or using other silicones or sprays on the board to to improve the or reduce the friction. That's something we've also looked at kind of having almost like injectors of putting like almost like kind of uh, lubricants on the like a snail the, to
1: make it faster. Like a snail um, you turn the board into a snail. you have the you have yeah, the lubricant yeah, so come know, out of the board of have,
2: almost like have kind of uh, like I't forgotten what, what it was now it was going on a bit too, to to re- try and reduce that coefficient of friction but it's not really to do with the shape. It's to do with the, the friction
1: between the two surfaces. Friction. Cool, man. Wow, that was cool. Now, since you said that, let me ask you a, just a follow-up question just for out of curiosity's sake. What is, uh, what's your favorite sport with uh, respect to uh, Newtonian physics?
2: Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Okay, uh, I love the pole vaults, actually. Oh, um, interesting. So uh, I think the pole vault is pretty amazing. It's an amazing... Thing that people do to, to do that, this kind of incredible gymnastic maneuver at six meters in the air is just totally extraordinary. But there's an incredible bit of physics behind it, right? So bear with me, I'll, I'll try and take this really quickly. Mm-hmm. Basically, what, what you have is the pole vault's all about translating um, kinetic energy running yep. into potential energy, which is about height. So, something might call it gravitational energy, which is how high you can go. So, you, you go, you, you move, you, you're turning movement into height. And of course, at the top of the jump, you have no speed. You've, re, you've reached a zero velocity and you've just turned all your energy into height. So, you can do a calculation, right, which goes, well, what is a theoretical maximum speed I could run at? Okay, so you take Usain Bolt, okay, how fast can he run at? So, he can run at like 10 meters a second when he's sprinting, you know, 10, meet, 10, 10 second, 100 meter sprint. Running at full speed, you can calculate how much energy. That athlete would have, right? If they do the perfect jump, they can use turn all that kinetic energy into gravitational energy, and what that does is it means you can calculate how high they could theoretically go with perfect technique. If you had the perfect athlete running at full speed, as fast as Usain Bolt could run, and what it turns out is that that height is like six meters forty, okay? Okay. Which. Isn't that much higher than the current world record at six meters eighteen? I think it is. Wow! And so what we've happened is pole vaulters have reached a ceiling of physics. They they can't go any higher because they just don't. There's no way of putting more energy into the system. So, they've kind of physics has put us like a limit on how high they could jump. And really, you have to do things like reduce gravity to go any higher.
1: Or would it be that somebody like you and your team would come along and engineer a pole that would be able to transfer more of that energy yeah, to increase you the bit, height? But
2: even, even if you're transferring all of it, uh, you've
0: still got a limit. you, you still, you've got still got a, got limit. a limit. Wow. You have to put more energy into the system to go any higher. Would you, do you improve footwear? Do you improve the running surface? Would that affect? When do anything? you can do. You, you come up against the hard rule of physics, which is
2: you can't. You know, energy has to go somewhere, and in this case, you're turning all the kinetic energy into gravitational energy, and that determines a maximum height.
0: Nice. A maximum
2: height. All right. So follow up question. We're, we're almost you- there.
0: We're almost there. Um, right. This this is definitely some a name that's going to get mangled. Fed Gab Gabaldon from Instagram. You want what? to have another stab
1: at that? Uh, forget about, em. Forget oh, about forget them. Forget about them. <laughs> Everyone's a comic.
0: <laughs> Even you. <laughs> so, oh. so here, Professor. <laughs> See, that's why Chuck and I are great double act. Uh, I can't read. Uh, For how long will athletes keep breaking records until they get to a biological limit in which they can't improve anymore? Will that cause the introduction of sort of biomechanical sports or athletes? Good question. Great question. Um, We've got some great listeners.
2: We've been looking at this as well, like a lot of how, you know, performances are changing over time. And in in all sports, what we're seeing is uh, every year, uh, performances. Well, most sports they go up a little bit, uh, but the rate of increase is slowing. And and if the rate of increase is slowing, it, it indicates that at some point it will reach a limit when it won't get any more. Um, in some sports, we've seen no improvements in performance since the 1980s. Um, take female athletics. Mm-hmm. Okay, a lot of those 1980s world records are not being broken, and in fact, current performances are significantly slower. Than those those performances in, in in the 1980s, and I think there's you know you can talk about you know issues around doping mm-hmm. around that. I think that's yes. a very valid discussion to have. Um, but but yeah, sure. I think humans will reach there will be limits. Um, that's to say, you know, we, we shouldn't reduce what we think is possible. If you take a case of middle distance running, okay, in um in you know, uh, ten years ago, maybe 15 years ago. We were seeing no improvements in performance in say the 10,000 meters or marathons or anything like this. And then what happened was a new population started to compete. Uh, East African runners started competing and performances really started to, to go up. So, um, actually what I'm saying there is that sport, although we live in a globalized society, not every corner of the globe is able to compete in all sports. And actually as more countries develop and enabled, are able to participate in sport, we might find that new populations enter those sports and performances will increase. So that's something to look forward to. So I'm, I'm, I, I, when we see, so, oh, yeah, this is going to be the human limit, I'm a little bit, well, let's let's just be a bit cautious about that because you never know. Um, and sure, you know, um, when those limits are reached, who knows what we want to do in sport? People like progress. And, yeah, maybe, maybe there will be some some changes or maybe sport will change or maybe we'll be more interested in these more complex sports, maybe like football and soccer and basketball, which aren't quite so deterministic.
1: Mm. So do you ever foresee a time that when it comes to human performance improvement, that we would integrate the technology directly into the athlete? For instance, a chip that might perhaps Increase your production of adrenaline, or that uh, actually stops you from producing uh, malolactic acid after your stuff like that. Could you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So
2: you know, you're getting into the into the realms of, I suppose, what's called transhumanism. So um, as you know, we start to develop, integrate the technology, change our bodies. In different ways, um, yeah, I can I can totally see that happening. It's it's kind of happening somewhat already. You know, um, if a hundred years ago, if you'd said that a child being born today is almost certainly going to live to a hundred, that would be considered to be completely crazy. And so, in a hundred years' time, you know, things might be very different for for humanity as well. And um, you know, that sounds a bit science fiction, but you know what? science fiction is becoming science fact in a lot of places in a lot of aspects of our, of our lives. Um, so yeah, I think, I think all these things can, can are possible. I think the, you know, the, there are big, big ethical debates about whether we want it, um, what it means to be human and, um, and who would have access and who wouldn't, you know, uh, these things can come at a cost certain nations start you know, they start building almost like these super athletes and, it, you know, that starts getting a bit crazy. So I think there's big political, ethical um, debates to have around that. Cool.
0: Yes. Um, well, that is our show. Oh, Professor man. David James, thank you're you
1: so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Man. You're, uh, you're th- fantastic. Chuck.
0: Yeah. You now realize that from maybe 1980 to now, mm-hmm. so much has changed. Absolutely there's so much more appliance of science so much more technology in play that you don't quite realize is there so uh, yeah it's it's uh, it's pretty cool when you I find know. people like professor
1: developing he's fantastic and making things happen and i didn't even get a chance to ask him about drag force good
0: right that's been <laughs> playing with science i've been gary o'reilly and i'm chuck nice and there's no drag force here no uh, look forward to your company <laughs> next time